0: God, we believe in your sovereignty, that you are the one who appoints leaders and kings and presidents and governing officials. God, you tell us in your word, 1 Timothy 2, to pray for such leaders. And so, God, we want to do that here this morning. God, we thank you for President Trump. We thank you for all that you've accomplished in and through him and his administration over the last four years. God, we pray as he... Uh, continues over the next couple of weeks, that you would just continue to, to guide him. And uh, Lord, we do pray for President-elect uh, Joe Biden. Uh, God, we do not know uh, his heart. We do not know if he knows you or not. And so Lord, if he doesn't, we do pray that you would give him faith to believe in you, Jesus, that you would open up the eyes of his heart, God, that you would give him repentance uh, and trust in you. And God, we do pray that you'd give him wisdom, wisdom not of this world, but wisdom from you, from your hand, that you would allow him and his administration to lead this country in a way that that honors you. And God, we thank you, um, Lord, that no matter who the president is, that our identity does not change. God, we thank you that the Great Commission does not change. God, we thank you that our dependence upon you doesn't change. God, that our hope is still in you, King Jesus, for your dominion is an everlasting dominion. Your kingdom will never end. So God, we give you praise for that. We worship you. We pray now, God, as we look to your word, or that you would give us understanding through your spirit. God, that you'd give us insight. God, we wanna know your word in a way that, that transforms us today. And so God, do that work, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Low self awareness will cost you money. This was the conclusion uh, from an article published by the Harvard Business Review. It discovered that employees with the best job performance and therefore who earned the most bonuses were the ones with the strongest self awareness. They're the employees who really knew themselves. They knew their strengths. They knew their uh, weaknesses. Uh, they had uh, an ability to kind of read the room, and they knew their own performance. This led these employees to adopt new skills, to work well with others, uh, an openness to receive feedback, and a desire to grow. Fortunately, uh, these kinds of employees are becoming less and less of the norm. In fact, one large company revealed that the job performance of 42% of their employees was negatively impacted due to a lack of self-awareness that ended up costing the company money. These employees have a, had an overestimation of their own strengths and their own performance, and it led to bad decision-making and a lack of desire to grow. Now, when you think about the church at Corinth here, especially when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, they struggled with a spiritual self-awareness that didn't cost them money, but it cost them spiritual growth. These believers here in Corinth had what I would call a dangerous combination of being incredibly spiritually gifted and yet terribly immature. This church here had all kinds of issues. They had issues related to divisions and quarreling. They were suing each other. They had sexual immorality. They were misusing spiritual gifts and and had idolatry and didn't know what to do when they gathered. All of these issues revealed their immaturity. And yet the astonishing reality and something that we've seen these first couple chapters is that they were unaware of their immaturity. See, these believers here thought that they were the mature, that they were the spiritual, that that they were the wise. And that's what Paul's been addressing these first couple of chapters. He's trying to help correct their own view and their own awareness of their own spiritual condition. And so when we get to chapter three here in this passage, Paul is continuing to expose their stagnant and complacent spiritual development in order to make them aware of their true spiritual condition. Now this morning, I I want you to, to put yourself in the shoes of the Corinthians for a moment. And I want you to imagine receiving this letter from the Apostle Paul. Okay, now when they received this letter, this would have been read to the entire congregation. And so I want you to imagine receiving this from the father in the faith, the apostle Paul. Okay, remember, this, this is the man who most likely led you to Christ, planted this church, spent over a year and a half with you, investing in you. Okay, there's, a, there's an intimate relationship with the Apostle Paul. And yet imagine hearing the, the, the description of the church here, as Paul would say that I could not address you as spiritual people. Okay, he says that you are people of the flesh, that you're a, a spiritual infant that you're not growing spiritually. I can only feed you with spiritual milk. Now imagine hearing that from the apostle Paul. If you were to hear that from him, the question that you should not ask is, Paul, who do you think you are? How dare you say that about me? But the question that you should ask yourself is, is he talking about me? Am I? a spiritual infant? Is he describing my spiritual condition? Oh, Church, that's been my prayer this week, that we would have the humility to be able to ask that question. Is Paul describing me here in these verses? And that we would have the spiritual awareness to be able to know how to answer that question in a way that leads to our growth here today. So this morning, we're going to look at a couple of signs uh, of spiritual growth that has become stagnant and complacent from these first nine verses. Okay, so let's keep that openness, keep that humility to see if Paul might be describing us here today. Here's the first sign that you might become stagnant in your spiritual growth. Uh, you're, you're having a prolonged gap between your knowledge and your behavior, It's important to know that in these first two chapters of this letter, Paul has really only spoken of two categories of people. He's been describing people either as, uh, as the natural person. So chapter one, verse 18, the natural person considers the word of the cross as folly to them. Chapter two, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit. Okay, that's one category. And then there's a second category of the, the spiritual person or the, the mature person, the, the, the person with the spirit of God who has the mind of Christ. Now, the problem with this is that not every single person fits into one of these two categories. It's been too simplistic. Either you're a natural person without the Spirit of God, or you have the Spirit and you're automatically mature and wise. And so what Paul does in chapter 3, verse 1, is he introduces for us a third category. Notice what he says here. He says, but I, brothers... Could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Okay, notice the third category here. They're Christians. They're in Christ. He calls them brothers, but they're unspiritual. Okay, they're, they're living by the flesh. They're what some call the, the carnal Christians, right? They're, they're spiritual infants, Again, this church is incredibly gifted spiritually. And and think about having the Apostle Paul spend 18 months with you, right? They they have a lot of knowledge. They have a lot of, of theology. The problem here is that their behavior was not matching their knowledge and their gifting. And on top of that, they're completely unaware of their spiritual immaturity. See, the Corinthians had what you and I have from time to time, and that is a spiritual gap issue. There is a gap between their beliefs and their behavior. There's a a distance here in the church of Corinth uh, on their, their knowledge, what they know to be true, and how that knowledge was shaping the way that they lived their lives. Now, why... Why add this third category if you're the Apostle Paul? I think he's adding this third category to guard some from despair and to guard others from presumption. This text is incredibly hopeful for those who are struggling spiritually, but, but you're still trying to grow. And yet this is a danger and a warning for the casual drifter. That for us to interpret this passage would be that if you're a Christian, you're going to have times and and seasons of having these spiritual gaps between what you know and how you're actually living out what you know. That that doesn't automatically disqualify you from being a Christian, but at the same time, this should be a warning to you and a danger of perhaps a sign of becoming spiritually stagnant. That having a prolonged period of time of having that gap between your beliefs and your behavior might reveal a jam going on within your own heart. That your head knowledge is not filtering down and impacting your affections, which then drives your priorities and the decisions you make and how you live your life. And we can actually just read 1 Corinthians to see what those gaps actually were between their beliefs and their behavior. But let me just suggest a few examples of spiritual gaps that you and I might struggle with from time to time. Okay, you might have a a spiritual gap issue if you know point by point uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, you know that to be true even theologically, but you might have a spiritual gap if you can't remember the last time that you actually shared the gospel with an unbeliever. Okay, let me give you another example. If, if, if you're a parent and, and, and you're encouraging your child to ask for forgiveness when they, uh, you know, when they misbehave or, or when they're mean to their sibling, but you might have a spiritual gap issue if you cannot remember the last time that you personally ask them for forgiveness when you sin in front of them or sinned against them. So you might have a spiritual gap issue if theologically you know why you should pray and you know how to pray, but you can't remember the last time that you just sat in the presence of God for more than three minutes. There's all kinds of of examples of, of these spiritual gap issues that you and I have from time to time. And again, it doesn't disqualify you from being a Christian, but it could reveal that you've become stagnant in your spiritual growth and your spiritual development because of this jam that's going on within your heart. And just think for a moment about the way that Paul is addressing these Corinthians, this blunt description of calling them a spiritual infant. Like that would, that would hit you in the chest, hearing that from uh, your father in the faith. But just think for a moment about how young children, about how infants live their lives. Like they live by what they feel rather than what's true. All right, they, they live not based on how they're supposed to live, but they live based on whatever they want to do, that's what they do. Parents, you probably experienced this firsthand a couple of weeks ago with Halloween when your child got all kinds of candy, whether at fall festival, trick-or-treating or whatever you did, and if your kids are like mine, they got home that night and they laid out hundreds of pieces of candy on the floor. And they're so excited and they're you know, putting it into different categories. And if you're in the Beals household, uh, you, you kind of have this parent tax for Halloween every year where mommy and daddy get a third of, of the candy, especially the, especially the Reese's. You know, We're gonna take all of those. But what happens uh, with our children unless you step in, is that your child is just going to eat piece after piece after piece. Like they're not going to stop unless you intervene. And what will end up happening is you're either going to clean up vomit later that night, or you're going to try to parent a a terrorist who's on that sugar rush and that sugar crash. Now, honestly, I'm not sure which one is, is worse, but you have to step in because young children, they do whatever they want to do, not what they're supposed to do. I mean, infants, they, they cry whenever they're hungry. They cry when they're tired. They're, they cry when they need a diaper change. And a spiritual infant allows their feelings to be authoritative that dictates the decisions that they make. For a spiritual infant, the ruling question of their lives is, will this make me happy? That question drives the decisions that they make. Is this what I want for my life? Rather than what does the Bible say? Is this true? Is this what God wants for my life? And so if you're a spiritual infant, you're allowing your feelings to not only be real, but to be authoritative, that then creates these spiritual gaps in your life. Because what happens if you're a spiritual infant and you're church, you come to church every week, you might have the facts, right? You might have the knowledge, but your knowledge sometimes doesn't match up with your feelings, with what you really want. And so spiritual infants, every time, will choose their emotions, will choose their feelings over what they know to be true, and it impacts their behavior. See, this issue of having these spiritual gaps, that's not really the issue. You're going to have that from time to time because you're human. The issue is when those spiritual gaps remain, when you have a prolonged gap between your knowledge and your behavior. Apostle Paul is writing this to the Corinthians, and they have been saved for years. Paul spent over a year and a half with them, and yet Paul can still only call them spiritual infants. So spiritual gaps, they, that will happen. You'll have brief setbacks. The issue is when they become themes in your life. That might be a sign of becoming stagnant spiritually. Well, secondly here in verse two, another sign of becoming stagnant spiritually is if you suffer from spiritual malnutrition. Struggling to spiritually digest truth into your soul will stall your growth. I think that's what Paul means here in verse 10, that the unspiritual person is the one who cannot handle solid spiritual food. They can only consume spiritual milk. He says in verse two, I I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready for you are still of the flesh. Again, Paul says, look, when I first came to you and led you to Christ, you were new in the faith. You were a spiritual infant and that's fine. That's good. That's acceptable Uh, back then when you were an infant. The issue here is that you're still a spiritual infant. For the Corinthians, they had a spiritual digestive issue. And if you look at verse three, it's because of jealousy and strife, that this selfishness and this pride that was causing them to spiritually gag on the solid spiritual food. And so Paul has been just trying to give them spiritual milk, which I think is the gospel of Jesus Christ, because the spiritual milk is teaching that is uniquely designed to get a proud Selfish, jealous sinner onto the path of humility. See, this first two chapters, Paul has been talking a lot about the word of the cross. He's been talking about that in terms of what the wisdom and the power of God actually is. And I think it's the word of the cross, the power of the gospel, which can get into the hard, and narrow spiritual esophagus, if you will, of self-reliance and pride and jealousy and bring with it humility and reliance upon God. The spiritual milk of the gospel, it it contains the right nutrition to kill pride and self-sufficiency. Why? It's because the gospel, the spiritual milk here is the message that declares you cannot earn your own salvation. You cannot work for it. You cannot please God enough on your own for where God accepts you as holy and blameless. The message of the gospel, the spiritual milk, is the message that says you must rely on someone else, Jesus Christ, who is perfect in your place, who died in your place. And it's that message that a spiritual person devours consumes, loves, wants more and more of it so that there's growth and eventually leading you to uh, consuming the the solid food within the Christian faith. So look, the the solid food here does not demand more intellect to understand it. It demands less and less of pride and jealousy and strife. See, the person who is unspiritual consumes the spiritual milk of the gospel And just gags on it, that you can actually have a a spiritual throat, if you will, that has become so swollen with pride and jealousy and selfishness that you choke even on the spiritual milk. And that's where the Corinthians were here. This is a dangerous place to be because it impacts the, the spiritual nutrition of your growth as a believer. And so how do you know if you're suffering from this? Let me take you to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. I want you to hear the description here of a person who can only consume milk and not solid food. It says, about this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... of someone who's suffering from spiritual malnutrition. Talks about someone who is dull in hearing, right? Someone who hears the word or is reading the word and there's little interest to it. There's little understanding to it. They're unmoved by it. They're maybe even bored of the word of God. See someone who's only able to handle the basic principles of the word? And so someone who only lives kind of in the, the shallow end of God's theology, someone who's averse to the, the theological meat of Christianity, just, just give me the cliff notes, just give me the application notes. I don't want to learn more and more about who God is. Someone who's unskilled in the word of righteousness, So someone who's not able to apply it and allow the word to to kind of shape their worldview, to shape the decisions that they make. Talks about someone who's unable to discern and distinguish good from evil. And so someone who is swept up with the things of this world and, and is unable to see the dangers of intermingling the things of this world with the Christian identity. Look, we've got to ask the question, does that describe you? This morning, are you suffering from spiritual malnutrition? Look, if you are, I just, I just want to encourage you this morning to do two things every day that I believe will get you on the path of growing spiritually. Number one, I encourage you to pray for humility. Pray and ask God to humble your heart, and pray and ask God to give you a hunger and a spiritual thirst for His Word. I guarantee God will honor that prayer. God will bless that prayer. Maybe not overnight, but over time, when you seek the Lord and you say, God, humble me and give me a hunger for your word, God will meet you exactly where you are. And then secondly, I would encourage you to nourish your soul with the gospel of Jesus Christ every single day. And, And not just some... General mantra of God is holy, I'm a sinner, Christ saves, but to personalize it, to take your sin, understand that Jesus took your place on the cross and through his sacrifice, he declared it is finished. And so, because of his work on the cross, you now can be forgiven, you have a new identity, you have a new purpose, and you have an everlasting. Hope, And the more that you meditate on that, the more that you feed your soul that, that's gonna nurse you and that's gonna grow you in the things of the Lord. Or just to do those two things will help you grow every single day. Well, moving on to the third thing here, another sign of becoming stagnant spiritually. Verse three is when you have consistent relational conflict consistent relational conflict. Paul says, if you notice here at the end of verse two, he says, and even now you are not ready for you are still of the flesh. Now, why does Paul say that here? How does he know that they're struggling to grow spiritually? It's because of verse three. He says, four gives the reason here for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? Notice that Paul shows that consistent relational conflict reveals spiritual complacency. That jealousy and strife are characteristics of the flesh. If you if you go back to Galatians 5 and you have the, the list of characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit, Paul in that passage also provides characteristics of the flesh, the fruit of the flesh, if you will, and jealousy and strife are on that list. Even Romans 13 says let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Like this idea of jealousy and strife is evidence of lacking spiritual growth. And yet underneath that, what we have to understand here so that we don't just address the symptoms, underneath that is selfishness. It is pride. I think Paul is pointing here to behavior that's motivated by selfish gain because that lines up exactly with how infants live their lives. In fact, one commentary described this word for jealousy to mean a kind of zeal that does not try to help others, but to harm them with the predominant concern being for personal advancement. <laughs> does that match up with how infants live their lives? Like I, I love babies, I love infants. They're, they're adorable, they're cute. I've got a seven month old. And, uh, and Milo, if you're listening to this, just ear must for a second, but they're cute. But the predominant characteristic of infants is that they are selfish. They live based on whatever they want. They're going to cry for whatever need they want. They're they're constantly wanting people to pay attention to them and feed them and care for them. That's how infants live their lives. And the reality is, is that you and I may not be wearing diapers here this morning. But if there is consistent relational conflict evidence by jealousy, evidence by strife with others, then you are living as a spiritual infant, as a baby in Christ. And I think when you read 1 Corinthians, you can see evidence of this all throughout. They are lovers of themselves. They are selfish and prideful. It's what caused the quarreling and divisions, chapter one. It's what led to suing one another in chapter six. What led to sexual morality in chapters 5 and 7, struggles in marriage, chapter 8, idolatry and a lack of concern for the weaker brother in chapters 9 and 10, a misuse of the spiritual gifts in chapters 12 through 14, and on and on and on it goes. So this morning, it might be helpful for us just to, just to pause for a moment, take a moment just to inspect your own relationships right now to see if there's, if there's relational conflict there, and not just once in a while, but is it a theme in your life where you have consistently, you're budding heads with other believers because of your selfishness and because of your pride? If so, that's a sign of stagnant spiritual growth. And then finally, this leads us to The last sign I think I see in verses four through nine, and that is having a misguided means of growth. In other words, in terms of understanding how to grow, there's been a shift in focus away from God, and now it's on other things. I think that's, that's part of what's behind verse four as they're talking about their allegiance to I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, what they're saying there is their growth was dependent upon the human leader that they associated themselves with, that I'm team Paul, so therefore I'm automatically going to grow. And so I think Paul in verses five through, through nine corrects this mentality by stating that he and Apollos were just servants of God, that they received these different assignments, these different tasks from God, and it's actually God who's in charge of the success It's God who gives the growth. It's God who is in charge of all of this. In verses six through eight, Paul introduces the first of three metaphors here, which is on agriculture to drive home this point. We're gonna look at the the second and third one next week. But Paul uses this, this metaphor of how Paul planted the seeds. Apollos came and watered them, but it says that God gave the growth that God is the life force who produces the harvest. God's even the one who, who produced the seed. God's in charge of even the water here. So I think the point of this metaphor is that growth does not depend on anything else but God. Now, as you labor and as you're faithful to the Lord, you will receive a reward, he says, but in terms of growth, the emphasis is on God, not on man, not on the planter, and not on those that water. And this morning, just by way of application say the point being is that you will become stagnant spiritually if your focus is no longer on God and his glory, if it's shifted to other things to generate growth in your life. And I think for us, It's a little bit different than the Corinthians who were struggling with which human leader to follow. Is it Paul? Is it Apollos? For us, I don't hear a lot in our church of saying, I'm team Chris Beals or I'm team Tim Lucas Savage or I'm team Dustin. I don't hear that in our church. Now, we do need to be careful of maybe more popular pastors or celebrity pastors that we think will generate growth. We need to be on guard with that. But let me suggest a couple of other common misguided means of growth where we take the focus away from God and we put it on something else to generate growth in our lives. The first one here that I see that's really popular is we put the focus on our emotions, right? We think that if I can, if I can feel a certain way, then that's going to lead to my growth. And so if I feel close to God, then of course I'm growing spiritually. And so the opposite's something that we tend to believe. If I feel distant from God, that must mean that I'm not doing very well spiritually. Or if I feel like reading the Bible, if I feel like praying, if I feel like obeying, then I'm growing, I'm doing fine. And that is putting a feelings-centric based Christianity at the center, which is incredibly dangerous to live by. In fact, you won't find any of that in the Bible. Throughout the Bible, there's an overwhelming emphasis on the will, on your obedience to God to demonstrate growth as you look at the fruit in your life. So be aware of of putting an emphasis on emotions to equating maturity. Another one that's sneaky is time. Time. I hear this from time to time, people who say, man, I'm just putting in the time and, and, and that's where my growth is. I'm part of a small group or I'm, I'm, I'm in a Bible study and, and, and there's not even an emphasis on the engagements in the small group or the engagement in the Bible study. It's almost like if I just show up and I, I invest the 90 minutes, then I'm automatically gonna grow. Right? It doesn't matter if I'm engaging with the scriptures, if I'm repenting of sin, if I'm if I'm praying, if I'm encouraging others, it all has to do with just putting in the time, clocking in, clocking out, checking that off the list of things to do and moving on with your day. It has much more to do with the time and more to do with your heart and your engagement in that spiritual activity. Another one is facts. People think if I just gain facts or knowledge. Then that will automatically translate into spiritual growth. It's one we gotta be on guard with. Another one is circumstances. That if my circumstances are smooth, if they're comfortable, if this is the plan that I want for my life, then it's time to grow, right? I'm I'm gonna start producing a lot of fruit. So, times of suffering, times of hardship, we're just gonna try to survive this. It's not really a time to grow, something that we need to be on guard with. There, look, there are many more misguided means of growth that we need to be careful of because the problem with all of these and more is that it goes against this God-centered vision and this God-centered means of growth that Paul presents to us in these verses. Did you notice the emphasis of God, on God in these verses? Verse five, it's God who assigns servants. Verse six and verse seven, it's God who gives the growth. Verse nine, we belong to God as his workers, that, that this is God's field and this is God's building. There's an emphasis on God throughout these verses. And yes, we're faithful to God. Yes, we put in the time. Yes, uh, we make sure that we're growing in our knowledge and our facts about God. But having a God centered vision and a God centered means of growth means that no matter what my circumstances are, no matter what my health is, no matter my job situation, no matter what I feel, no matter what's going on in the country, no matter who the, the president of the United States is, no matter what happens to religious freedom in this country. What matters as far as my growth goes is God. God is in charge of the growth. God is the one who will give the growth in our lives. And so the the response here is, is a surrendering posture towards God, towards his grace and saying, God, you are the one who's gonna grow me. You are the one who will mature me, not these other things. And so we need to come back to putting our hope in the one who's in charge of our spiritual maturity and our spiritual growth in the Christian life. There's a lot more we can say about spiritual growth that we're gonna even look at in the passage next week as we move on to, chapter, uh, to verses 10 through 23. God, we praise you and we thank you that we are not alone in this world. God, you have not left us as orphans, struggle on our own without you. We thank you, God, that you made a way when there was no way, that you sent Jesus Christ, our only hope in this world, for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you, God, for the message of the gospel. It's so sweet to our souls. God, when we slow down and when we think and we meditate on what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, accomplished for us, God, we thank you that that feeds us. We thank you that that satisfies us. We thank you, God, for all that you are. God, I pray as we live in coming days and coming weeks that we would be the people of God whose eyes, whose focus is upon you, that you are the one who gives the growth. So God, our hope is in you. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.